Spin Run, the RPG talk show podcast. Hey guys, uh, welcome back to Drink Spin Run, you gorgeous listeners. My name is Adam, uh, and I am here as always. I'm joined by my beautiful, lovely co-host, Mr. Don Stroud. Don, how are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm great. <laughs> I'm excited. Are, I'm excited. Are you? I'm glad. I'm glad you're excited. Um, yeah, I'm excited because I. I don't even know. I yeah, I've never run one of these uh, investigative games, so I'm excited for uh, the learning to f- settle upon me like a mantle of inspiration and cuddleness. 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 Yeah, I don't know what that means either. Um, I think I think he's blaming to spoon our wisdom. Is the quilt of Cthulhu? Oh, <laughs> the quilt of Cthulhu. <laughs> That's nice. not going to be a, a, a top-selling supplement. <laughs> no, <laughs> probably not. No, but it's already selling on Etsy. It's already uh, been kickstarted, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, Don kind of gave it away there. Tonight we're talking about investigation in games, what works, what doesn't, what's... Uh, I keep saying it that way, and I feel bad. It's, it's you know, we want to talk about it. You know, how to make it an awesome, integral, and fun part of your game. Um, how to make it you know fulfill what it does you know what's what why do we put these things in there why do we run games that are based on that um and and how we can make it a super awesome success um as a result of this topic and this is as a result of this topic we have assembled a panel of two fantastic guests who are going to school us a bit um on what um what they think about investigation games now call of cthulhu veteran and good friend of the show, um, and by that I mean actual real life friend, uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Bob Brinkman is here with us tonight. Bob, how you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you very much. Your refill of scotch is treating you well. Oh yes, it is. I get no- nothing like a good five fingers of scotch second time <laughs> around to make you feel good. <laughs> I'm I, I'm working on the joke that I could make off of that, and it's it's not it's not appropriate. I don't think. <laughs> not, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, so also with us, um, also a veteran of many investigative games, and he's going to soon give us uh, a clue of what some of those are, um, uh, is is Mr. Andrew Shields. Andrew, you've also done a bunch of other stuff. We haven't mentioned, we didn't mention this the first time around, but I know you've got, you've got a number of publishing credits under your belt. There's some new stuff that you did recently, that some of which is uh, very appropriate to what we're talking about. Do you want to just give us a little bit of rundown of, of, of you? We should have done this the first time around, <laughs> but we're going to do it now. Uh, well, a little bit about me. Um, you know, I've uh, enjoyed gaming for most of my life, and uh, mm-hmm. one of the things uh, that I enjoy about it is the interpretive nature of it, because uh, there's things that you make up, and then there are things that you take some results and decide what to do with them, and, and gaming is like the, the king of giving you opportunities to do that. Um, as far as things that I've done, uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, working with pulling together and interpreting materials of what other people have done. For example, Kieran Robinson had Old School Hack, which was an Emmy Award winner. 
and I combined it with Jack Shear's World Between setting to kind of make a World Between for Fictive Hack game of gothic fantasy. Oh, shit, uh, I didn't realize that was you. That's me. <laughs> I've read that. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, It's been a while since I've read that, which is why I didn't realize that was you. I'm sorry. And it really lends itself to investigative games because that's very much in the gothic vein. Mm-hmm. Um, I also uh, really like the work of John Harper. I've done uh, quite a few... Uh, variations and adjustments of lasers and feelings which is a very simple game that lets you really get directly into um, just rolling dice for things that that really matter and pulling in new people to give them a taste of what role playing is without uh, much uh, barrier to their entry but still giving them interesting choices because you know as will become more important later on as far as I'm concerned the some purpose of gaming uh, one way to summarize that is to give a group interesting choices and see what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just an endless series of that. Um, so I d- I've worked with those. Um, I've been involved in a number of other projects. Just recently, a deck of uh, cards came out from Inkwell Games. I've enjoyed working with Joe Wetzel, who's in charge of that. Uh, he gets a picture for the front, and then there's a description of the NPC on the back. And I write those, and that's kind of like uh, poetry because you're trying to pack the most this matters to your game into a very small space so that they'll read that and think there's four different things I could do with this person you know <laughs> <laughs> so you have you have to be efficient you have to be really efficient to do that kind of work and I appreciate the opportunities he's given me to work on it so um, and I have some other irons in the fire that are gonna come out but I can't talk about it yet that's good so, that's fine anyway we're, we're kind of I like to play over I like to play a variety of games, um, and I've I've gravitated more towards rule light rules light as time has gone on. So um, yeah, that's a that's a bit about me. Awesome. Well, thank you. I, I wish we cool. had done that the first time around. <laughs> uh, but but I mean, it's it's <clears throat> important that we did it now um, because that kind of you know lets us know how you're going to fit into this whole thing. I mean, you and I had a conversation earlier that I just wanted everybody else to have that overview you know um especially don since you know he wasn't there for those conversations earlier that was me (laughs) on uh masquerading as the podcast um what i pretend to be the podcast and i I talk to people don uh oh yeah just like you do on facebook (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so um all right so let's, let's talk about uh like the investigative game you know like uh like when you're when we're running a game and uh, we want to, let's. I want to start very philosophically. What is the payoff? What is the why run of an investigative game instead of just another dungeon crawl? I think players find it satisfying. Uh, there's there's nothing like that feeling of unraveling a mystery. We as humans hate mysteries to begin with. We we want to solve them. And so when you put those threads out in front of players, it's a huge payoff when, they, when they're pitting themselves against the adventure, not just a, a monster in a room somewhere, but they're, they're pitting themselves against the storyline and the adventure and coming out on top. I think there's a really... Uh, there's a great feeling of satisfaction when you get through something like that. Awesome. Andrew, you have anything you want to add to that? Uh, I think conflict is exciting. And I think that, you know, in real life, generally, violence is the least creative response 
to a problem. Mm-hmm. And when we're gaming, uh, it seems a shame to take this imaginative space where we can do and be anything we can think of and turn it into kind of a video game combat simulator. Mm-hmm. When there's so much more we can do, one of the greatest advantages that uh, tabletop role-playing with living people has is it's not limited by what the programmers could come up with. It's limited by the people who are with you. And people have an op- people really have a chance to surprise you, you know, to come up with what's, um, what solutions are possible. When vi- I like reducing violence to one tool in the toolbox instead of saying this is going to be the evening, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, and so having a mystery gives people a way to employ a broader range of ho- what's hopefully on the sheet or uh, hopefully behaviors that they've kind of cultivated over time um, to really engage a problem and come at it from more than one angle. So, of course... I got lots of thoughts on that. <laughs> Great. Um, I'm, I'm going to pinch it off there. But I got more thoughts. Well, okay. So, um, also, guys, don't don't be afraid to like build. Like, don't wait for us to moderate you, you guys. You know, as well. You know, if you've got a thing that uh, you need to say, you really need to get it across. You know, do it. Just make it happen. You know, right. interrupt each other. Ask questions. That's fine. Harley Stroh uh, was the first person on the show to basically take over the third host spot. <laughs> and uh, we, we realized that that works really well because uh, we get excited about things. Well, Don, um, when we started off the show, you were saying that you haven't um, done any like investigative style games. Um, was there a reason for that? Um, so as we talked, or as you guys talked, I'm like, wait a minute. I guess that I do. I do sometimes, especially when you're starting something like uh, Media Res, uh, where you're like, you're here. Like, there's real interest in them wanting to find out how they got there. But I've never, like, I've never actually, you know, sat down and said, here is, here's the thing and I have all the clues. I just don't. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to play or even run some Call of Cthulhu. I just never have. There's no good reason. Um, there's always a good reason always... to run Call of Cthulhu. He means there's no good reason. Well, he yeah. hasn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't own any of it, and I'm thinking I need to... I can give you a 5th uh, edition book right now. You can download a quick start guide and a free module from the website. Yeah, yeah. I guess I've just been lazy, and that's my reason. Okay, that's um, fair enough. And I mean, I should because I because I love I love Lovecraft and all the mythos. I mean, I read that stuff. Um, you guys are making me get off my slack train and slack train. This can be a slack train. Slack wagon. Slack, slack wagon's slack way wagon. better. It's got to be a slack wagon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's far better. Far more descriptive. I'm gonna whip my horse and get off the slack <clears throat> wagon, and you know, actually get out and yeah. Now you just got species. Good dog. episode, that's, guys. Yeah. Good episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. No, We're done here. I totally, Don's, Don's inspired. He's got to go run a game now. I'm sold. Yeah. I'm going to go spend some money. Or not, because it's free download, apparently. I uh, know, but I can totally see the benefit of giving the player something to solve. Like, even if they're in a dungeon, I really like to have a reason for that and have, I guess, I guess there are clues in there to say, hey, this was this, and they love that stuff. Like, players like to discover why something is the way it is and not just hey let's just 
oh there's goblins here let's kill them oh there's this in here let's kill it you know so they do appreciate that more so i guess maybe i do run some sort of investigative type thing just not what i was thinking as investigative yeah i mean maybe maybe it's about like like um Maybe the difference is less like between like a traditional dungeon crawl and an investigative game. Maybe the difference is is a little more, little less obvious. I mean, in a way, they're both games of exploration, right? Um, whether yeah. whether you're trying to find the the next level of the dungeon or figure out who the murderer is, um, you you make it, you know, it, it, you just change the focus. Like, yeah, we're we don't want to, you know, we we don't want to. Uh, engage in combat uh, for one reason or another. We want to, you know, this is more about solving the clues. It's more about putting things together. It's more about, you know, the the not uh, different challenge on the journey. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. So um, I I grew up running a lot of Call of Cthulhu um, back in the day, um, but more germane to my because I didn't. I don't think I ran it right. You know, I'll admit. Um, despite being a big Call of Cthulhu fan, I think I was all, or like the, sorry, Cthulhu Mythos fan, I was, I, I will admit that my gaming tended to run more towards power gaming when I was of that age and time. Um, stands back, guys, sorry. Uh, but the thing that, uh, the, it's actually my current employment has, uh, rekindled my interest in an investigative style game. I'll tell you, I don't know if I've I've mentioned this on the show, but uh, the company that I work for right now is actually the nation's largest murder mystery theater company. The the nation's largest theater, uh, sorry, interactive theater company. The only theater company in the country larger than the one that I work for is Cirque du Soleil. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so it's called the Murder Mystery Company. You'd never guess what we sell. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I've, I've become like the mysteries that I've, you know, become really familiar with and, you know, like how they're conducted. Um, it's, it's something that is a bit more, um, you know, it's, it's a murder mystery. It's not a Cthulhu mystery or anything like that. So we're, we're focused, you know, that, that mystery is focused on, you know, very specific things, you know, who had the opportunity to commit the crime, who had the motive to commit the crime. And in the end, the person with both of those is the killer. But because this is basically, it's a role-playing experience that we're selling to people who don't play role-playing games, right? It's a LARP for not LARPers. And, um, then that's cool, right? I mean, that's fun. Um, yeah, they've been popular for a very long time. Right, and we're very yeah. much banking on that success and has made the company, you know, a really, you know, widespread one in that field. Um, especially because we have a method that involves the people who go to see the murder mystery, you know, as much as possible, rather than just having it be about our actors, right? So um, from our point of view, we are very much selling a LARP, you know? Uh, and yeah. they're... I think it'd be easier to count the non-RPG gamers who work there than the gamers. Um, it's just it's just something that attracts that many people. Stan is trying to paint miniatures. Sorry. <laughs> he's, he grabbed some orcs off of the tabletop here, and now he's got a dry brush, and he's trying to paint them. Good job, Stan. Um, so... Uh, that's where like a lot of my interest has gotten rekindled. You know, how do you make that interesting? How do you make that compelling? Um, how do you get them to the point where they can solve it? Now, I can speak from the, the example of the company that I work for. I know how we how we answer those things. 
Um, this is not for regular gamers. So we use humor to keep them involved, right? Um, this is not for regular gamers, so we have to be relatively formulaic about things, right? And we have to make sure that they can solve this murder mystery within two hours because they paid good hard money for this. And, you know, it's, it's their Saturday night that they're spending doing this. So, you know, uh, we, we have kind of a formula to it. Um, what goes into making a good investigative game? And anybody who wants to start can start. Uh, I've got two tools that together can really make it easier. Uh, the first one is to have at least three uh, levels of scope. Uh, because let's say your example is the mystery that you want to solve is a female assassin has come in and killed a person, right? And we need to figure out who did it because of who done it, right? That's like baseline. So in planning it, my recommendation is to have a henchman who was involved in the act uh, who worked for the assassin then you've got the assassin then you have the assassin working for someone else and the reason that you want to have those scopes is because if the group gets distracted chasing shiny objects or a lot of time gets chewed up uh, here or there you know in places you didn't expect which is ideal that normally happens um, then if you have a way to fall back and if they don't solve the mystery of who did the murder at least they can find the henchman then that's a satisfying stopping point. Um, and then if things go more or less uh, rhythmically the way you expected and they find the assassin, then you've solved the mystery, you know, enough for the session so you can have a, a satisfying conclusion of some kind based on that. But what happens if they uh, get lucky and have a flash of insight and solve it in the first 10 minutes, then you have the person behind the assassin. So by shifting the scope, the basic idea is, the goal is, at the end, they have a satisfying conclusion. And it's good to have more than one conclusion that's possible so that once things are shifting, once you get about two-thirds of the way through your time, you can really kind of lean towards one of those scopes to wrap it up. That keeps you from being trapped in a situation where there's only one way to achieve a satisfying awesome. outcome. Yeah, I, I've also heard the thing where, you know, if, if there's a point at which, you know, a clue becomes relevant, that uh, you figure out either three different ways to introduce the same piece of information, right? Well, let me let me tell you about that, because what we're talking about here is the beginning of a discussion of the three yeah, yeah. clue rule, which is the other uh, thing I want to talk about. Bob, was what? that... A I, I, I'm sorry. I've 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 heard the three clue rule over and over, and I and the four points of failure, and I think things break down to two points of failure. The two okay, potential well, points of failure are the writer and the guy running the game. Okay. What? what okay. Well, but little, was, oh, hold on. Just real quick. I want not everybody knows. Yeah. So tell us about. Not it. everybody knows the three clue rule. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I can keep this pretty brief. Uh, this is uh, credit where it's due. It's Justin Alexander, runs the Alexandrian blog, is where I yep. encountered this, and I found it very useful. Basically, it only kicks in when there is something that the player characters must know for the adventure to continue. So, you know, if there's something that they have to figure out or the adventure doesn't go any further, then at minimum, that's where the three clue rule comes in. And the idea is there must be at least three different ways that the players can figure that out. And once you get in the practice of it, you don't need to stop at three. You can come up with four ways, five ways, six ways, and you can combine some of them. Once you've determined uh, that they need to know that a person is a werewolf, 
then they can find that out by finding his journal. And then you can take that journal, which you've already generated as a clue, and put other clues in it. You know, so you can combine those. But the idea is to put lots and lots of clues out. Um, and the way that I've interpreted that is, whichever direction the players go, think about how they might find something that would point you back to, the, to what they need to figure out. So basically, instead of saying there's one or two clever ways that the players can solve the mystery, make sure there are lots of different paths to success. So as long as they're moving, as long as they've got some momentum, you know, they can get closer to discovering what they need to know for the story to continue. See, and there's there's things there that I agree with and there's things that I disagree with. Um, the other portion of the, of the uh, three-clue rule is when he talks about there's four points of potential failure, which is, you know, if they're looking for a clue, they've got to be able to, you know, they've got to search the room successfully. They've got to care about what they find to look at I, it. Actually, he's, he's suggesting that, that the three-clue rule was designed to overcome those points of failure. Right, but, uh, but I yeah. disagree with those points of failure altogether. <laughs> Well, um, basically, I think if you just say that, you know, there's a lot of different paths to success. A lot of different paths is, is a good thing, but I also disagree. There should never be, in a, in a properly written adventure, you should never run into the problem of the players need this particular clue to right. move on. That's that's like saying, you know, in a D&D &D adventure, well, you know, the, the big bad's behind the secret door. You only get one chance to find the secret door. You failed. So, so maybe shifting, maybe uh, shifting yes. the, the emphasis from the clue to rather the information that the clue imparts, right? Like, Well, it, it not even, it's, it's not even that. Because, uh, using the werewolf uh, uh, example for a moment, um, if, you, if you write an adventure that has a big bad that's a werewolf, that's, that's fantastic. The players don't necessarily need to find that out till the big reveal. That things shouldn't focus. You should never get hung up on is he a werewolf or not. He could he could be a killer. You find out he's a werewolf and you confront him. There's any number of things, and I think I think part of it stems from if you want to run a straight investigation game or if you want to run a, a horror game, and they can be very very different. Well, I um, think I think what I would say to that is the key is there the if there is information that they need to proceed in the adventure, then it has to have at least three pathways. That doesn't speak to what that information is. I mean, it's, it's whatever you want it to be, whatever they have to figure out to go on. So, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say that they have to figure out it's a werewolf. That may not be it. Uh, it's just whatever piece that they do need has to have multiple paths. Basically, I think it's just a reaction against saying, you've got to figure out the path that I thought was pretty obvious. Well, and, and that's, and that's, and that's, ways, a, that's a fair cop. Uh, yeah. because, because the players will always come up with at least a dozen things that you've never thought of. Uh, and and see, yeah. I enjoy that. Because oh, the reason, so do I. The reason that I play, like I say, I can write. You know, For me, the thing that I enjoy about gaming is the interpretive requirement. That's the only reason I even would ever run a scenario is because there's a challenge to interpret the material into what the players experience and then interpret how the world would react to what they do. So, I mean, that's not a generative practice. It's an interpretive practice. And well, investigations really give you a lot of practice in saying how does the world react to what they're doing? How do they react to what's in the world? And how can we make sure that that's full of interesting choices? Well, interesting choices are, are always very important. And it also depends on what type of, of campaign or game you're running. And if you're running a con game, you've got, you have to make sure that everything is, is scattered out 
And even if there's a dozen different paths that lead to an end that follow different paths and different clues, that's really important. If you're running a home game or an ongoing campaign, you don't always have to have a resolution in a session. You don't have to to have an answer in four hours. Uh, The most successful campaign for Call of Cthulhu that I ran uh, went over a year, and at the end, everyone was either... uh, international intelligence or law enforcement and so at the end of every session they told me what they wanted you know we want we want to pull stolen you know stolen car reports we want missing person reports we want this interpol file and sometimes there'd be something there sometimes there wouldn't and and for me that was fantastic because it was it was a very cooperative game in that all of those player ideas were funneled to me and i could i could react to them as opposed to being in a, a solid structure where it's like, okay, you want to go to the asylum that's 75 miles away from the town that you're in in a four-hour session and I've got nothing planned. And, and that could be, that can really put you on your toes. But I think that as as things progress, again, you should never get hung up on a single clue. Things shouldn't, there's there's never a reason for anything to get hung up on a, on a roll or, or anything of the sort. So... Yeah, I mean, the whole point of the three-clue rule is to say never put all your weight on one or even two, but make sure there's a minimum, always a minimum of three ways. Um, And, you know, as far as what you're talking about, I I agree. Uh, There are two um, driving forces when it's not a single shot, because in a single shot, I do like to have um, the ability to shift scope so that there's some kind of resolution at the end. But for a home game, I've got two... Uh, insights kind of are related to that. One is, um, I ran a city called Grifton, uh, which was full of supernatural secrets and darkness. And every time they would solve a mystery, one of the one of the key things for me is um, not to hold on to my mysteries tightly, because there's always a mystery beyond it. It's just like, don't worry about protecting this NPC. Something happens to him, there's another one behind him. So, you know, with the mysteries, when they solve them, that's great, because they're never going to run out of mysteries. There's always a mystery behind the mystery. Oh, so I, uh, I kind of prefer to start, you know, to start them, and, and when, they, when they think they've got everything solved, there's two or three things behind it. You know, they've just right. hit the tip of the iceberg. And, and the, that kind of gives the, them that, that big sense of scope. But the, pr- the problem that I ran into is uh, after a year or two of that, they get uh, demoralized. Uh, because they're like, why would I solve that? That is an ablative layer between the n- this and the next most horrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's only something worse behind it. So I'm going to let that mystery alone because that's like the makeup on its face. And if I scrape that off, then I look, I see horrible pores. Um, well, you have if to I scrape that off. Then I get to cheekbones and I just don't want to get deep into that. that well, you have to worse. eventually give them the win. Yeah, you, well, you can't. And, yeah, and, you can't add layers indefinitely because then, yeah, it's it's peeling through an onion that never ends, and that just gets frustrating. Um, and that's where my second that's where my second tool when I'm dealing with a home game comes in, is um, I run games in arcs, uh, usually four to six sessions, and the reason for that is because it's hard to get and keep the same cast all the time. But when you're saying we're going to run an arc of this, uh, then people can commit to four to six sessions. And that way you can have a similar group most of the time and you can deal with something thematically and you can have a beginning and a middle and an end, but you can stretch it across multiple sessions and then you can play other games in between, but then you can come back and do another arc after that. And whether it feels more like a movie sequel or a second season, you know, um, that gives, I do, I do something similar in pieces. 
See, I like I'll, what I'll do is I'll run uh, like the last big Call of Cthulhu campaign that I ran here. I would run it. It all took place in the span of a year. Each adventure took place in, in a in a month and it advanced. And they'd go four sessions, and then I'd run an interlude. So the the main game was set in 1920, and then the first interlude they played was in 1950, and they they played this entire other storyline coming back through time towards where they were at so there was all this there was this opportunity for them to not not have to dig around and and try and unearth things so much as to experience them as players uh it was a it was a, a set of scenarios based on the Loveland Frog if you're uh, if you're familiar with the Loveland Frog who's a favorite of mine and uh, and so they played the cops in the fifties. They played kids that encountered it in the seventies, and it all came kept coming back to the nineteen twenties, and it all paralleled down to the end. And so they'd have this mini arc. They'd have an adventure off that still dealt with a storyline in a different way, and then they'd come back. And it, yeah, arcs arcs help because it it prevents fatigue. I think with the players. That reminds me of a. Uh of an arc that I did in Kingsport once. Uh, one of the, this was for my modern supernatural game. And uh, one of the characters had gone into the deep umbra and had a great seal folded into her skeletal system and life force. And when she came to Kingsport over the course of one dream a night, she went to a place where Cholza had burned a hole in reality and had to reverse that victory. So it became a defeat. And so she had to win in five different time periods through dream travel to put the great seal down and keep Cholza from burning a hole in the earth. That was kind of cool. Nice. <laughs> but but I also think it, it really is important to decide if you want to run an investigation game or a, a horror-flavored investigation game or a horror game. Because, See, because yeah, if you're I mean, running straight-out horror, you know, with Chill, Beyond the Supernatural, Call of Cthulhu, with any of them... It is it is that huge possibility of losing, sure. That that well, really kicks things in. I mean, I guess for me, um, running games is a lot like cooking in the sense that, you know, I wouldn't want just gothic. Gothic by itself isn't anything. It has to be gothic fantasy, historical gothic, you know, gothic horror, gothic something. Right? You add it to something else, and so I'm happier when I've got two or three genres in the mix because then you can you know, see how they blend uh, and where they contrast and where they complement each other. Um, so, I mean, yeah, for me, horror by itself isn't anything. It's it's science fiction horror or it's, uh, you know, investigative horror or, you know, whatever. And so for me, I mean, I, I feel like it's impossible not to mix things together. Well, I think, to, but I think one is a genre and one is a style. And and I think I think that's that's a, an important distinction. I mean, you can you can run a, a horrifying dungeon crawl. I've I've actually made players well, right. cry, and it had and nothing to do with investigation. It was it was a, I was running a horror based game um, that yeah. that was not investigation. And Call of Cthulhu can yeah. certainly be run that way, but I will also say that it is very rarely successfully run that way. And I mean, I don't know that I've run anything that didn't have an element of investigation in it. Uh, because, you know, for me, both styles and moods, uh, I need a variety so that it can be intense when it focuses in on something. You know, like, 
my horror games have a lot of humor in them because you have various moods and so you know when you switch from one to the other it's sharp and it's fresh and it's intense instead of losing its focus by being always one thing and likewise you know well you um, need those beats just like in a horror movie you need the beats you need the breaks yeah i mean in in the west end games uh star wars they listed the things that you should have in your adventure it's like probably need a chase you probably need a scene where you're talking to npcs probably need some kind of fight uh, and probably need some kind of investigative thing. That should be in all of your sessions, you know. <laughs> and I think that there's a lot of value to that, to say, you know, when you switch things up like that, uh, then then when you focus on a thing, uh, then you really have room for p- players with different styles to share the spotlight. Um, and, you know, because not every player is going to enjoy a, that's an investigative game, if that's Very all true. it is. And, and some are definitely going to want, want combat. Yeah. And I think... I think though most most investigative games, I, I don't know about your experience, but but mine at least playing has always been every investigative game seems to end with a combat. Uh, that's not always the way I, I run them, but it, it that seems to be my experience as a player, and it kind of gets overdone. But it's kind of that it's that emotional release and payoff for the people that aren't really big into investigation. It's that big breath and rush. Yeah, see, a lot of mine, uh, all of my investigations tend to end with conflict. Uh, but it's not always violence. Sometimes once you identify who's behind it, you know, then what happens is their resolve may crack and you may see what's behind it. And that's a little chilling, but that's not always violence. Right. Or you and that's find important. out the depth of what they did and in the process of trying to, you know, deal with that or process it. But it's not always a fight, you know, because in some ways... Uh, in a lot of ways, a fight is a chance for the char- the players and the characters to have a release, and sometimes they don't get that. Yeah, and and that's and that's important. And I think that I mean I've played I've played games which in the uh, in the Lovecraft community are referred to as bug in a box games, and and those are no fun. Uh, it's you know you're 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 trapped in a particular situation, and nothing you do is going to resolve anything. You're doomed from the beginning, and nothing you do matters. And and while while those certainly I suppose qualify as cosmic horror, it's not entertaining cosmic horror. Um, and with any investigative game, you there's always a tendency or a, or a lure to try and and railroad players too much. And uh, and I've I've played in those games where we're not going to do that. Well, now you're being forced to do that at gunpoint, but it it didn't make sense to do it in the first place. So well, options are important, and flexibility is very important. And that's, I think, where it gets back to failure of a writer or failure of a judge. If if you're running something and the players come up with something new and fresh that you didn't think of, and your first instinct is to just shut it down and say, no, it's my way, my way, my way, you failed. You shouldn't be running the game. Yeah, I think, you know, it gets back to that key idea that what we're doing here together, the reason we've come together is to... Uh, together encounter a series of interesting choices and have fun and if if you get to the point where you don't have interesting choices then then somewhere it broke down uh and also i mean the world is there to be broken so is the scenario so is everything else i mean the fun thing is when players take it do something totally unexpected and i've got to react on the fly i love that what i hate is when my players sit down in the middle of the room stare at their fists and are done because it's like the only my only choices at that point are to solve it with NPCs or let it burn down. 
That's it. That's all I've got. Because if the players aren't moving, you can't redirect. You can't put something in their path. The game can't move. I mean, without the see, players, but I, I think move. that I think that when players have gotten to that point, something is something has already gone horribly, horribly astray. Uh, in the, in that you know they've they've hit a frustration point, and and that's and, and I think you know and I've encountered it with some of the published modules, and I've I've read them, and I'm like the person that wrote this has, has, has failed and I need to kind of expand on it because if there's one way through it, whether it's one clue or one secret door it's not a good adventure it's well, not but, well designed and it's not always about the That's, person running the adventure or the adventure because players are trained by game masters you know and if if the players have had game masters where their creativity has not been rewarded then when they go play at somebody else's table or are put in a different situation, you know, they're like, well, tell me what you expect me to do and I'll do it. You're not telling me what you expect me to do, so I don't know what to do, so I'm giving up. See, but that's, that's, that's not a failure of the scenario or the game master. I mean, that's a, um, that's a player I, who's I, I been dis- in a rough I disagree. Spot. I, I strongly disagree. I'm just saying disagree. not all players have the background uh, if, necessary. If, if you've got players that have been trained that way, as, as a keeper, it is your job to draw them out. And I think that 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 is most certainly a failure of the person running the game, uh, see, because you've got see, people that are that are shy, that are reticent, that don't talk a whole lot, and you and need to be different. able to bridge those gaps. You need to be able to pull them out. You need to be able to get them moving. Your job is 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 not to make sure they win or lose, but to facilitate what's going see, on. There's a couple thoughts there. One is I run, um, I have traditionally run a lot of games with strangers. You know, and you got a one shot. There's a limit. To oh yeah, do. no, I, I do because quite a bit. also the the fun of the table does rely on the table. I mean, the game master alone can't do it all. Sometimes other players can help out, uh, and sometimes the game master can't. You know, do the magic thing that's gonna you know help a player shake a funk. You know, sometimes that's just not in the cards. And while the game master has a lot of responsibility, uh, it can't all be laid at that door. See, I. I, I I wholly disagree. Um, I think that uh, you know, no. if you've got if you've got one player uh, that you're trying to draw out, yes, you might not be able to draw every player out, but you're going to try. And if you've got one player you can't draw out, the players aren't going to be sitting there staring at their fists, unable to move forward, because other players are going to keep things moving forward, and everyone's going to have a sure. good time. If well, you're running really, into a I, dead end like that, I mean, I, I run I, I run open table games with twenty twenty five people, and I've I've never had that problem. I've been I've been doing it since. God forever, and it it's all about paying attention to the cues you're getting from the players. I mean that's yeah, that's and, what it and really, to. you know, when I'm when I'm doing my design and when I'm running things, I really don't focus on failure states. You know, I focus on, you know, what's going to help this work. What are the ways forward? I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what is a disaster and what causes it. I'm I'm more interested in. You know what are best. Well, no, because those are just things you have to better. react to if they come I up. Mean, so I mean, for me, it's just like focusing on whose fault is it is so much less useful anyway. I mean, it's just not my default. Can we switch I'd, I'd gears rather, real yeah. quick? Because uh, Bob, first off, um, I'm, you're, you're you're coming in really really pixelated right now, or really you know well, oh, terribly sorry. Make any sense, but kind of kind of kind of grungy sound. Would you mind just refreshing the hangout real quick? I think that might be all it takes. Okay, sure. Give me a second here. Let me. Yeah. Um, it, um, I, just, I it, it feels like, you know, we're, 
uh, kind of just getting to what, what's effectively a difference in style and perspective, right? And that's totally cool. These things happen all of the time. Oh, Bob. Bob will be right back. <laughs> uh, it seems like we're... Co- there he is. It, it seems like um, it's just a, it's, you know, it's mostly a difference in perspective. I mean, stop me if I'm wrong, guys. I mean, that oh, just sure. it seems like, and, and obviously people, everybody's, uh, you know, um, everybody's experience as a GM is a, at least a little bit different. Um, I, Bob runs, Bob really does run a lot of convention games and he runs a lot of games for people he's never met before. Um, a lot of games, you know, uh, where he's not in control of the people at his table. I am, I don't do as much of that anymore. Um, even when I'm at a convention, even when I'm running games at a convention, chances are the people at my table are people I've run with in the past, or I've completely curated the people who are there, <laughs> you know, because I'm not running it on the books. Bob, you sound good now. Uh, so okay. we're good. Um, that it, it seems to have just been the hangout connection. So that's great. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, Bob, you know me. I, I curate my groups really well. You know, Andrew, I, uh, I get the feeling that if you do a lot, mostly like online gaming, like I do, you probably curate those groups a little bit more, right? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, I'm always on the lookout for players who enjoy playing with me. Mm-hmm. You know, because you want to build up a group of of yeah. people that's a reliable pool. But in order to do that, you have to play with a lot of just whoever shows up. Sure, too. Um, yeah. Some of the the most uh, gaming that I have done with strangers has revolved around Blades in the Dark and Lasers and Feelings, uh, which are two games. One of them has a low barrier of entry because the rules are simple. The other one has a very excitable online community. So, you know, you say, you've read the book, you're kind of excited, you want to see how it works, do you want to play? And so I would, you know, put on sessions so that people could, you know, get some experience with it. Okay, well, do you mind talking for a little bit about how you use those games in an investigative manner? Um, we, uh, we, uh, I'm going to, a little bit of I'm background. kind of excited to hear about that, because I'm not familiar with the games at all, so I'm really excited oh, okay. to hear about that part. Well, at, at GaryCon, yeah. uh, James Smith and I actually ran a two-table uh, Blades in the Dark game, um, and it was... Uh, you know, it was one of those things where we knew it was gonna, we knew that it wasn't gonna be the way that the game was intended to run, because first off, it's us doing it, and we're gonna we're gonna make it work the way we want it to anyway. Uh, second, you know, it was gonna be an after hours con game, so everybody was probably gonna be messed up and weird, um, and you know, out to just have fun rather than play the game in the style that it was meant to be played. Um, so th- that's and ultimately ended up with you know each of us just taking a table and running for that table and then swapping periodically. Um, but I'd love to hear about investigative games, specifically in Blades in the Dark, um, more generally <laughs> in uh, in sure. uh, Lasers and Feelings. That's a game I have like zero experience with. So um, yeah, anything you tell me there's new. Well, one of the real advantages to running an investigative game with uh, Blades in the Dark is that is uh, the game that I, pr- of all the games that I have, that's the one that I am the most comfortable uh, walking up with zero prep, except for getting together the papers, references, and so forth, saying, let's make characters, and then we will play as long as we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the game is built with a drama engine. Uh, your actions have reactions and consequences. Uh, there are needs that are built in that the characters want to satisfy, that the that pull the players into one is satisfying their characters' needs. So, 
basically in the process of making your characters there are six or seven key points where they choose identities that uh, are signals from the player to the game master to say I care about this I'm interested in this I think this is neat um, and when I run it um, at conventions I use my gang structure uh, which basically says what kind of a mission do you want to do what kind of a uh, or who do you want to answer to because these different NPCs have different overviews, purviews. Um, what kind of equipment do you want to have? And a couple questions like that, because that is the players directly telling me the kind of thing they want to do, the kind of thing they want to see, the kind of things they want to need. Right, what they care about, yeah. And so basically, I can look across, you know, let's say you got a group of three or four people, all of them have been making those decisions, and somewhere, those plot hooks bunch up. So, <laughs> yeah. Two of the three people have said Scovelander refugees are interesting to them, and one of them is in desperate need of getting uh, a loan shark off his back. So right there, uh, you can say, you know, you don't have to be fancy. You can be like, hey, there is a, a Scovelander who is under the thumb of this loan shark, and if you help him out, that helps you out. You know, so you just look for the plot hooks that they are handing you. You sift through them and say, what can I immediately turn around? What can I just immediately turn into a situation? Um, and as far as heists go, one of the real advantages to uh, Blades in the Dark is the flashback mechanic. And what that allows you to do is pay a price in your character's plot armor in exchange for uh, having done something beforehand that matters now. Uh, the tagline that I use when I'm doing Blades in the Dark at game days is I say, your characters work hard, your characters work hard so you don't have to. Because uh, the idea is they've they've hunched over their candlelight and made their evil plans, uh, and they've done this, you know, at ad nauseum. So they've done all of this prep. Now you may have just thought of a cool thing, but they already thought of it and did it, and now it comes into play. I like that mechanic. So, I like that a lot. So, yeah, it, it basically the game master is responsible for shocking them into action. And then anything that you need to handle through planning, you do retroactively through flashbacks, which means the kind of mission you thought you were going to do can pivot mid-mission into something else. Now, And it's entirely about, possible that you were prepared for that pivot, which is right. amazing. <laughs> so, so we're talking about how is that interesting for investigation. And I would say the way that's interesting for investigation is because it expands the player's toolbox beyond violence in a really effective way. Because in a traditional role-playing game, you fall back on what's on your sheet, and what's on your sheet tends to be weapons, armor, <laughs> and ways to stab your way out of danger. Uh, but in Blades in the Dark, maybe you bribed somebody. Maybe the guard who's holding you at sword point is actually your buddy who snuck in last night. Uh, maybe uh, this uh, bag that is supposed to have torture implements to take care of you actually has the keys because you bribed the doctor at this moment, when this moment came, to release you. So at this point, you are expecting the players to come up with uh, more because they have so much more power. They have more power to insert things beyond violence into the narrative. So the way that this relates to investigation is you're interpreting what they do, what, the, what threads they give you, and it's possible to create and solve a mystery on the spot. Because you may not have known why they were sent here to kill the captain of the guard until they get to the captain of the guard and reveal through a flashback that they set it up to be a mole hunt. 
Cool. I like yeah. that flexibility. That's yeah. really neat. And this is, you said Blades Against the Dark? Blades in the Dark. Blades, yeah. in, Blades the dark. in the Dark. Yeah. I'm definitely yeah, going to have to check this out. I like that mechanic. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Bob will play it. Uh, I promise you. You and I will play it sometime. <laughs> so, so, you just have to find me when I'm holding still. Yeah, that's tough. Does does that help? Uh, does that help answer the question? Absolutely. As far as how investigation works well in that. Absolutely. Game? No, I, uh, I I I I agree. I, I I definitely see that. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, very very cool to me. Um, Bob, I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to come over to you. You, you. you are you're the Call of Cthulhu guy in my book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Thirty-three years and going. Yeah, takes a takes a different tack on uh, on the mystery on investigation. It's um, much more of the uh, like the whereas whereas Blades has more Blades in the Dark has more of a like a fluid um, way of interpreting the the progression of a mystery. It, so- it sounds like. Blades is far more improv yeah. than structured theater. Yeah. Um, while and while Call of Cthulhu certainly has has its share of improv, I've got to say the, the I think the strength of Blades is truly uh, its its full embrace of of improvisation. That's mm-hmm. that's really nice. Um, with Call of Cthulhu, I mean, there's there's so many there's so many different ways to go. I mean, if you're if you're just starting out, you've never run an investigative game before. It certainly, it certainly, as as a keeper, it can be very easy to to get overwhelmed at first. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many different people someone can talk to, or uh, you know, all of my players they've never played this before. I've never played this before. They just want to you know beat people up, and so their solution to that is, of course, they have the idea role and the knowledge roles, uh, because nine times out of ten in Call of Cthulhu, you're going to be playing a character who's smarter than you are. And that mechanic helps reflect that. Uh, you know, not not every player is going to sit down with two PhDs, and uh, one being you know in in arcane history, right? And so they do have they do have a, a dice mechanic that you can fall back on um, to kind of move you forward if you're if you're just starting out or your players are just starting out. Um, I think that Call of Cthulhu takes a bit more structure to put together, certainly. Um, especially if you're me, I have a handout fetish, I will admit it. Huh. Um, it is it is not <laughs> uncommon for my players to walk away from a game with 20-plus you know, pages of really cool stuff because, well, come on, 20-plus pages of really cool stuff. Uh, <laughs> and so you can put things together that are going to be incredibly complex or simple, Depending on what you're what you're going to be running. If I'm running a con game, there's going to be a lot of simple stuff with some incredibly complex stuff on the back end. So if I if I've got players that are digging into it, um, my my latest mountain monsters delved into uh, Hebrew numerology to uh, to a point that even I thought I had gone too far down the rabbit hole and maybe I should see somebody about it. Um, <laughs> but, but not everything has to be that complex. And so when you're, when you're looking at your sheet, uh, combat in Call of Cthulhu is incredibly deadly, and that's how they discourage it for recurring players, uh, because if you get into a combat, you can die really fast. But for a con game, someone sitting down 
they're not necessarily going to know that. I get a lot of people that have never played Call of Cthulhu before, and they're like, oh, I always wanted to play this game, here I am. And I'm like, well, the last thing I want to do is kill them 20 minutes in because they uh, they jumped when they shouldn't have. What's the advantage of having another character on hand? (laughs) Well, there there is, and I generally I generally have a a spare character if I need, but but for a con game also I'm I'm one of those I'm one of those old timers. You know, if if you get incredibly reckless and die, it was it it was a pleasure, but I can only I can only do so much for you. But I also work on not not providing that sort of opportunity early on in an adventure. You you want people to investigate. You don't want them to say, "Well, I want to know this, so I'm going to beat that guy up." That that is not an option. You you really want to put in front of them. If they're determined to do it, you you're not going to stop them. But that's not what you want to serve them up on a plate. You want to serve them up with people they can talk to, places they can go, and certainly there's there's roles involved for library use and things like that. But my favorite tool these days is oral tradition. Uh, I I ran a series of adventures in the Deep South, and you, you go to the old bait shop, and there's four old guys playing checkers and drinking beer, and they will tell you what they know. And uh, so you can take that you can take that bit of old style storytelling and give people clues that way. And as long as you give them a printout afterwards, so they don't have to sit there and take notes, so they can actually just envelop themselves in what's going on and experience it because players will remember things they experience far more than just what they they hear or you tell them this is great Uh, that works really well i really like that there's two very different styles here being represented um bob you you know you're obviously a little bit in the more old school the 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 prep heavy almost you know uh, oh, I I would make no bones about yeah. it. I I prep very heavy. I, I but now I'm going to check out Blades in the Dark. So, <laughs> well, and the thing is, that's just one game. Yeah. I mean, I, I run investigations in a lot of other games. Um, I've run a lot of Call of Cthulhu material, uh, but I usually update it to the modern time, uh, just yeah. because it's a lower barrier of entry for my players, and. I have to improvise everything they surprise me with. So I prefer the modern era just because it's easier to figure that out than be like, okay, I don't know how I would have solved that in 1924. The, o- the only you know? thing I don't like about the modern era is like, okay, well, I'm going to Google that. Oh, my God. Sure. No, no, no. Well, don't put your phone no. down. You got bad reception. Uh, 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 but, and which, which is such a horrible horror movie trope. Yeah. But, but other than that, I, I wholly agree. You can do so yeah. much more in a, in a modern setting. You can give and players I, so much more. When I when I was playing the most of Call of Cthulhu material, I was adapting it to chill. Oh. Uh, because one thing I liked about it, Good game. one thing I liked about it, is you had four different levels of success. And so when I would write my clues up, I would write, this is if you get a basic success, this is if you get a better success, this is if you get a critical success. And that allowed me to uh, give them the chance to kind of leapfrog around depending on how well they did so that they could get some information, but every now and then they would get, you know, lightning would strike, and they would really right. get ahead. Now, um, are you so, aware the new Call of Cthulhu, uh, the, the latest version, actually does do just that? They have multiple levels from, of success now. I have so much experience in uh, ripping off their storylines, <laughs> monsters, and stuff for other games that, no, I haven't gone back to the Fountainhead. Uh, <laughs> they, they actually do now. They've got success... 
uh, it's like critical success and amazing success, yeah. or they've got three levels, and you yeah. can push. But yeah, having having multiple levels like that is nice because you can you can set how much you want to reveal. Well, I was I was very honored. Uh, just this last year, I got to play Call of Cthulhu with Scott Dorward. Oh, nice! Which was on my bucket list. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, I died. Uh, but at least I went okay, crazy Okay, that's good. That's important. Um, well, yeah. guys, uh, yeah, we are yeah. nearing the end of our time together. And so, oh, I, I know. Feels like we just I got does. started. That's the sad thing. Is like, <laughs> so we're doing part three, right? Uh, maybe next <laughs> <Yeah>. time. Well, <laughs> we might, we'll, I, guess, I guess a question that I have is, after hearing this discussion, do you feel that uh, running an investigative is game is more in reach. That, I think that question is pretty clearly for Don, right? Yeah. Well, no, it feels like it's so much more work than uh, <laughs> than uh, I was even thinking. No, Don, no, I come mean, on. You I totally... live and breathe prep. You, uh... You're, you... <clears throat> now, this is a misconception that started with the first season, when I was more of a prepper. <laughs> Right, but you know, if you pick up if you pick up a a modern day Call of Cthulhu adventure, the prep is already done for you. Most of them are pretty solid. You run your handouts, read it through a couple times, but that's your prep. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm a, I'm I'm a dude who loves the handouts too. So. Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you from my perspective. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I I I always like to throw in mysteries in my games. Um, if players latch onto them and they decide they want to pursue them, then that's great. You know, even if it's not like like significantly, that's the that's the point of the game. Um, I. I feel like it's just an oversight that I haven't run any Call of Cthulhu in ages. You know, um, and I'd love to go back to it. But just like Bob said just now, I would want to you know go back. Yeah, I would want to use prepped materials, not not because I'm lazy, but because I want to make sure. I guess to a degree that I'm doing it right, but less less that I care about doing it right. The more that you know, I care about my players' experience and making sure that they've got a robust one. Now that having been said, on my own, I'm far more likely to run something like Blades in the Dark. Now we initially put this ga- this this episode together to talk about Gumshoe. And then our gumshoe expert, who will remain nameless, Brett, uh, dropped out and said, I can't do that. Um, I am not a fan of gumshoe. Uh, We didn't get a chance to talk about that. So, Brett, you still have a thing to come on and argue with me about, so we're good. Um, I'll I'll come back and argue gumshoe with you. Andrew, I know that you have run some gumshoe games, um, but because we're so tight on time, I'm not going to bring that up. I will say that um, I think, for me, it's going to depend on what is my intent. If my intent is to run a campaign, I'm going to run Blades in the Dark, you know? Um, because I am a low prep, let's roll with what we got going. I've got my five or six things that I know about what you did last session that, you know, I made note of that I'm going to bring in this time. You know, uh, I, I, I get the idea of how that game works, you know, in the series of heists. We're going to go from point A to point B, blah, blah, blah. We're going to have fun with it. Um, Call of Cthulhu, um, keeping it going is what I am not clear on <laughs> you know see you know i i hear you know, that that's kind of the the standard trope you know you'll go insane before you die you can't run a campaign and well, you can like okay. i said i've, I've you, run campaigns totally that have can. gone a year if it depends it all rests in the hands of your players and if you've got reckless players yes they're going to go through a lot of them but once once they start really digging in once once they 
start realizing that they want their characters to live and they want this character to see the end of the mystery more than just them seeing the end of the mystery survivability goes way up you know it it goes from the one guy who everybody hands every book to so he reads every book and goes insane to something that's a lot more balanced and, and maintainable. Well, my actual, I don't want to call it an objection to running a Call of Cthulhu campaign. It's the hurdle, the intellectual hurdle I have to get over, um, which is um, really like the impetus for a campaign, despite it being significantly dissonant to the literature that inspires the game. Um, I understand that there are, like Bob, you talked about how in your game there were a lot of people who were, you know, um, they were investigators. They were police officers, FBI, CIA. I know that Delta Green is a thing, despite the fact that its existence makes me angry. Um, you know, because it's it's very <laughs> un-Cthuloid to me, you know, and I know that... It doesn't have to. It doesn't, uh, but it doesn't. It like just the very nature of it just to me feels so uncthulhu uh, that I that's that huh. again. This is my impression, um, and as a result, that has I've never been attracted to it at all, um, even when it wore those really tight shorts. Um, but then you know when you're looking at a campaign, you know because I understand what you're saying. In, you know, Lovecraft stories. It's generally one protagonist, one story, yeah. and out with very very few exceptions. But then it depends on how long each story you're telling is and how many sessions you're going to get out of just right. one and then, story. And then there's the fact that you don't have just one protagonist. You have, you know, you know four, six, however many you've got. Um, and so you can yeah. always bring in and, mysteries and we, from those sources and, uh, and then deal with the consequences of that, right? I mean, that makes sense. You, you, oh, you could have a whole session. You could have a whole session, two hours, just to talk about how to make a campaign. Yeah, yeah. So we, yeah, we, we <laughs> yeah, don't have time for that. Yeah. I'm just saying yeah. we're not. going to That's solve not that really. Now. That's yeah. Obviously not why we're here. Um, so I, I do want to. I do want to ask one final question, and this is in lieu of the third rail or lightning round or whatever we do at the end of the episode. I want to ask you guys: What is the most spectacular failure of an investigation game that has that you've either witnessed or has happened to you? Andrew, your face is on my screen, so we're going to go with you first. Yeah, the most spectacular one was um, they went to a cave complex to figure out what was going on there. They found out it was an underground gladiator ring, uh, so they would need to capture the leader, you know, to bring back proof of what was going on. Uh, We were doing it on a Saturday. We stopped in the middle of the day for barbecue. They spent over four hours arguing about what to do <laughs> my entire game day was spent sitting at the head of the table wishing <laughs> i was playing video games oh, so. <laughs> oh yeah i would say that was the most spectacular failure <laughs> yeah because you know the players couldn't decide on a course of action because some of them were like let's set it all on fire and some of them were like no we must have something clever and it, I don't need to unpack it. It was bad. You can use <laughs> yeah. your imagination. Sounds awful. Yeah. I don't want to relive have it. to. Sorry, man. <laughs> hey, Bob, what about you? 
Uh, you know, it, Jen and I sat down at a game at Gen Con some years back, and it was funny because the guys were trash talking the uh, the Novus group, and uh, they're the folks that run the Cthulhu Masters tournament and uh, and a couple other tournaments at Gen Con, and they were kind of trash talking them. And the adventure was set in the Belgian Congo. Jen had just finished studying you know, King Leopold's ghost and everything. We were we were totally down. We were excited for this setting, Belgian Congo. We know it. We're good to go. Um, so right off the bat these guys who were talking about how they're going to sell their adventure um, didn't know the Belgian Congo. So we finally we finally, the boat stops, we're looking for this guy who who is missing we we trek into the jungle and we find you know, ripped up corpses everywhere and this giant stone idol. And we're like, well we're getting the hell out of here because this is a bad, bad place to be. And the adventure was literally written so that we had to take the idol with us. And the moment we decided we weren't going to take this idol, for which we had no reason to take with us, the crew of the boat surrounded us at gunpoint, enslaved us, made us drag this back to the ship, simply so that as we were going down the river, the big monster would attack the, the boat on the river because we had the idol. Uh, that was by far the the worst failure in an investigative game that I've ever experienced. It was they're on my they're on my no fly list. I, I won't play with them. Again. That sounds terrible, man. <laughs> it it was it was it was horribly disappointing. Man, I mean, that is a total downer question. Yeah. At the end of the session. Normally, these are really <laughs> funny questions. <laughs> it's like, how did this blow up? Oh, that's yeah. not funny, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, Don, do you have anything? Oh well. I don't. Um, Thank you. I I have one where I am the guy who screwed up the Belgian Congo. Um, I it's not not as bad as Bob's thing, um, but on on the front hand, right where where you said Jen knew the Belgian Congo backwards and forwards, right? Uh, yeah. Well, she yeah she just spent a semester I, uh, studying. It. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I I love. Uh, the old Victory Games James Bond game. And I should have mentioned that in my history mm. of running investigative games because that's a type of investigative game, right? And, uh, oh, certainly. And it's right. and yeah. putting in mysteries, like, you know, in that game is all about, uh, um, like, threading clues. And I'm going to tell you, Andrew, a lot of the stuff you said, this is what I do. You know, like the, the three levels of, you know, like, here, here, here you know, like, three levels of removal from the thing that you're investigating um you know because in bond you have you have the mooks you have uh the medium boss you have the uh the the femme fatale you've got the um the gorgeous lady who's somehow tied up in the plot you've got the super villain behind it all you know um so that part I was totally cool with right that's that part i was good i had a cool villain i had some cool henchmen i had some cool you know a uh, cool femme fatale and you know this neat thing going on um because i'm setting it i was setting it during the period of um you know of the cold war you know because that's the best bond in my my opinion you know um i, I was really trying to follow that um you know uh that kind of aesthetic instead of it being MI6 I came up with a UN task force that did this shit so all the people could come from different countries because that was cool um, and I had read up a ton an absolute ton on um, the politics of the non-aligned movement um, which that's the third world 
in first, second, third world. First world is is the U.S. and and Europe, right? The the, the NATO allies and Australia. You know those folks who are right. part of that group. The 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 second world is the Warsaw Pact. The third world is everybody else. You know, if you weren't aligned with one of those two major you know, world axes, you were third world. You were part of the non-aligned nations. And dudes who are in charge of that stuff, pretty cool guys, you know. Um, un- except for like maybe Castro. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like Sukarno, um, you know, like all these people. So I did this thing, and you know, it's being centered. Like I did all this awesome research, so I had like good, ba- like like a, a real historical backdrop for it all. I failed completely by having not done the proper amount of uh, research on a simple, simple thing that threw off a couple of players completely because they knew way more than I did. And that is weather patterns oh, in North no. Africa. And you don't think that makes a difference. <laughs> oh damn, no, you know, that's 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 a that's a brutal yeah. one to get caught out on, man. That's hey, hey, but you know, an important fact. Did you know that there's enough sand in northern Africa to cover the whole Sahara Desert? <laughs> you know you True can go facts, fishing man. in the Sahara yeah. Desert. True facts, man. There we go. Uh, <laughs> but, a, but a chase Mind scene blown. in October in Tunis should not should have been a lot slipperier than I was envisioning it. So that's no. why, yeah, it was that. That's the DM failure right there, or and author failure. Wow, and that's at, and you know, I I've, I've got to say I wouldn't blame you though, man. I mean, weathering patterns well, and that is that is such a, a bit of trivia that oh, most people wouldn't even think of. Year, or the well, couple, and, when I ran this, he was like, "Well, you know, of course in October." He's he's from England. He's like, "Yeah, of course in October, uh, you know, it's the north coast of Africa. That part of the north coast of Africa is is incredibly rainy. So we're there in the rainy season." like well shit man (laughs) (laughs) and that's where those improv skills come into play and that's that's how it went but uh there were a bunch of clues that got lost because of that and other things and it was uh it was bad bad prep on my part sorry guys go ahead andrew what were you saying (laughs) you know anybody who plays in my game i do look them in the eye and say hey this is alternate universe Uh, <laughs> no, sometimes sometimes so, you know, I actually be I was so impressed. If you're playing if you're playing Star Trek with a Trekkie, yeah. you got to be hey, you know, we're we're here to have fun and if you're going to get hung up on I trivia, was I was I was actually so impressed with his knowledge of North African weather patterns because apparently he vacations in Tunisia routinely. That, so I was like, oh, well <laughs> shit. Yeah, yeah, cool. We'll roll with that. We'll run with that. Now there's motorcycles yeah. skidding all over the roads, yeah. and you know that Peugeot just crashes into the side of a building. And yeah, we'll roll with it. It made me look like a total moron, but you know <laughs> we'll we'll roll with it. It was fun. Uh, well, that's a risk we take every time we sit in the game master's chair. Absolutely. Well, and if you're if you're rolling with it, embracing it, and using it, you don't look like a total moron. You only no. right. you, it's only problematic if you're fighting it. If someone right. knows knows more about it and they say, "Well, there's this, this, and this," you just nod, incorporate it, keep going. Nobody's any the wiser. Well, and I think an, the and trick another thing always too, for me is like looking for the thing that they're not saying. You know, yeah. what's the thing they're not telling me, and then we'll use that. And truth is also stranger than fiction. Oh my God! I mean, yes. Just to say, well, that's usually true, but this is a dry season this year. Hmm. You know, I mean, the world is unreliable. Not as reliable as fiction. 
That is very true. <laughs> All right. And with that, I think we have covered this topic as much as we're going to tonight. Um, I want to thank my, my fantastic guests. I want to thank uh, Mr. Andrew Shields. It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. Thanks for coming on the show. We'll be happy to have you back in the future. Um, I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, glad you can make it on such short notice. Uh, Bob Brinkman, good to finally have you on the show, and you're now on my good to finally be asked. (laughs) (laughs) You're on my emergency speed dial now. Like, boop. Okay, all right. We're an opinionated guy. We need Bob. All right. uh, You know, Uh, I I, I work from home. I live at home. Uh, I'm I'm here. You live at home. Shock (laughs) the amazement. I I see the sunlight every month. And uh, my lovely co-host, Don Stroud. How do you feel about this? I feel like I really want to play some uh, Call of Cthulhu. I think Are you going to be at I'm Gen Con, Don? Yes. Yes, I will. I will run something after hours for you at Gen Con. Yeah, all righty. I like it. I'll Grab Nate Bethel. He's a, he's a Call of Cthulhu guy, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if Nate's going this year. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm right. sure we can get tons of people. Yeah. Sweet. Just, all right. Well, you guys have, uh, you know, Don, I, I'm sorry, this is me saying thanks for you being here. Yeah, you gorgeous listeners at home, thanks for joining us. You all have a great night. I'm Adam. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> uh, and, and thanks for being here with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Drink, Spin, Run. If you like what you've heard, share us with your friends, leave us an iTunes review, or email us at dsr at kickassistan.net. You can also support us at patreon.com slash dsrcast. Our theme music was generously provided by the band Blue Snaggletooth, who you can find at bluesnaggletooth.bandcamp.com. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time, you gorgeous listeners. Listener.